Hi there, Tyler Buckingham here, and I want to thank you for supporting Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network. As part of our effort to improve our content and expand our audience, we'd love it if you could take 10 minutes and let us know more about you and how we can bring the best possible coastal content to you in the future. I promise it's quick and easy. Just go to CoastalNewsToday.com to find the survey. Thank you so much. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, uh, in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, there's been a lot of changes going on around the shorelines of the world, but particularly in the Arctic region. And it's a subject that we have been trying to get a handle on and following on Coastal News today uh, for some time. And uh, I'm really happy that we're finally going to kick off a podcast, I hope is a series over time, to talk about what's going on in the Arctic region of the world. And we have an incredible guest to help us understand uh, this subject matter. So I'm really looking forward to our show today. Uh, Victoria Herman is the guest, and her, she is the president and the managing director of the Arctic Institute, a 501c3 organization founded in 2011. And we're going to learn all about the Institute, but an incredibly capable and powerful organization that has really taken a lead in understanding the complex issues arising in the Arctic. So I'm really looking forward to talking to, to, to Victoria today, one of the key guests we were hoping to get so i'm happy happy well peter you know we've really wanted to uh do a series on the arctic and uh finally uh, you know i don't know what it was maybe it was summertime and <laughs> we just didn't have the i, I just i think it's a cold, the oppor- cold the opportunity weather show. did not arise but uh now we've we've got victoria i'm really excited the arctic is absolutely one of the most dynamic parts of the planet uh and for me anyway one of the least understood so this will be a great opportunity to learn some things and uh, understand just the complex ways that this area is changing on our planet but before we get into it peter let's have a quick word from our sponsors the american shoreline podcast network and coastalnewstoday.com are brought to you by lja engineering with 28 offices along the gulf coast the folks at lja engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration coastal infrastructure rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants offers high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, and the skilled and respectful crews to get your project built. Make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring the dune and wetland ecology of your home or barrier island. Learn more at coastaltransplants.com. Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at dunesciencegroup.com. And be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at CoastalNewsToday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, Victoria, thank you very much for joining us on the American Shoreline podcast and taking time out of your busy schedule. Uh, Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, Victoria, one of the things we like to do on this show, and I think it helps our listeners out there understand who they're hearing from, is to get to know you a little bit more before we dive into the issues of the Arctic Institute uh, you are the ma- president and the managing director of the Institute. And can you tell us a little bit about how you came to that position and uh, your interest in the Arctic? 
It's a bit of a long and winding road, but if you're willing to take the Let's journey do with it. me, um, we are. I can start from the beginning. Uh, I went to college thinking that I wanted to do something on human rights. I grew up hearing stories from my grandparents, who are Holocaust survivors, about surviving Auschwitz, about how most of my family did not survive. And having this incredible opportunity to choose my career, choose what I was studying, I knew I wanted to do something that would contribute to human rights, to elevating voices and ensuring that the biggest issues were brought to the decision-making table. When I got to college, I first learned what climate change was, and that was pretty revolutionary for me. Uh, I realized that climate change is the biggest human rights issue of my generation. It is the biggest human rights issue of humanity, of our future. And so I dedicated myself to learning everything I could about climate change, which took me to the Carnegie Endowment uh, for International Peace in Washington, D.C. And I had this great opportunity to work with their energy and climate program. And I worked on mega cities of the world and how to make them green, how to make them equitable and how to adapt them to the climate impacts that we can no longer avoid. And while it was awesome to work with cities like Rio and Mumbai, New York, Beijing, cities have a lot of access. They have a lot of access to resources, financial and technical, and they have pretty big visibility in the political decision-making realm. And so I thought, where could I be of more use? If cities already have all of these connections, what can I do to contribute the most that I can to climate action? And after having lots of conversations, uh, the Arctic kept coming up as the front lines of climate change, somewhere that really needed advocates to connect the region, its indigenous experts and traditional knowledge holders, people who already had a vision for a resilient future with those centers of political and financial capital, places like D.C. and New York. And so I switched from working in the most populated places in the world to one of the least populated places in the world. I moved to Canada and spent a year there before getting my PhD. And that's where the Arctic Institute came into my life. I started as a research associate and eventually I took over the management of the Institute and helped grow our team into the incredible 30-person research team we have today. Well, I'm excited to learn more about the Institute. And Victoria, what an awesome uh, path you've traveled and to, to end up working in the Arctic. And I just, I love, I love that, how that initial uh, human rights uh, uh, pearl, Spark. sand, you know, I wanted that little grain of sand that, you know, kind of turns into this incredible uh, career opportunity, this pearl that you've got here. And uh, I, it struck me, I've got to say, the idea of going from cities with, uh, you know, just a, a block, just a lot of people. I mean, just a lot of, <laughs> I want to say a lot of voices, uh, you know, the politics, the interests, the what we want to consume to the Arctic, which is just the planet. I mean, it, this is a natural, completely natural zone. Uh, what an interesting transition. Um, you know, we'd, we'd like for you to play a little tour guide here. You're, you, you represent, let, first of all, before, before we go on the tour, you're going to play tour guide. We're going to go around the Arctic. We're going to learn about the international issues, the geography, what's, what's going on up there. But before we do, tell us about the, the Arctic Institute, how it got started, and what you all work on. The Arctic Institute is a think and do tank. We think a lot, we do research, uh, we collect data, and then we do. We translate that data into action, into solutions. The Arctic Institute was founded in 2011, before my tenure at the Institute, by Malta Humpert. And he created a space for younger, more innovative thinkers, researchers, 
doers to come together and create a new research agenda for what was needed to create a more sustainable, secure, and just Arctic. And that's what we do today. We are focused on the Arctic, not necessarily as a natural space, but as a homeland, as a lived-in land. Four million people call the Arctic home. We often think of the Arctic as this peopleless landscape of tundra, polar bears, ice, and snow. But the Arctic has cities. The Arctic has politics. The Arctic is not this single thing, but there are so many Arctics, and all of them need different research projects, different capacity building projects. And I think that's why our institute is so diverse in the topics that our researchers cover. We have projects today looking at smart cities in the Arctic, how to integrate traditional knowledge and technology to make sustainable northern cities. We have projects on Arctic migration, how climate change is forcing ecosystems north, displacing communities, creating new economies, and what that means for decision making. It's looking at the blue economy, how to make sustainable economic decisions about fisheries in the Arctic Ocean as we see more access each year. All of these have one thing in common. They view the Arctic as two things. First, as that homeland, as somewhere that people live. But second, as a region that is intimately connected to the rest of the world. It may seem far off to us in DC or even further south from me, but the Arctic affects us all, right? The Arctic, what happens there, the climate of the Arctic, the economic decisions, the security decisions in the Arctic have the great potential to impact the rest of the world's planetary health, our security, what food we eat, and what temperatures we can expect in the next century. And that's what we're focused on at the Arctic Institute researching this, building the capacity, and creating the solutions together with Arctic residents, Arctic experts, and with people around the world. Because what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. It impacts us all. What a big job, is what I would say. Uh, <laughs> looking at the website at the Arctic Institute, and I would encourage people listening, if you can, to go to the thearcticinstitute.org uh, and check out this as you listen to the discussion we're having with Victoria, but uh, the subject matter breadth of the work that you undertake is uh, in incredible uh, from climate and the environment, defense and security, indigenous rights, law and governance. I'm not going to list them all politics and strategy, natural resources and energy of it, what strikes me about the Arctic as a challenge uh, for, and I would say this for the human community um, are two things. Number one, we know that climate change is having a dramatic impact in, in this region of the planet and changing the landscape, changing the seascape in significant ways. And we have a region of the world that is multi-jurisdictional, uh, which is bordered, I think it is, if you, if you wouldn't mind telling us, I think there are seven nations that border the Arctic Circle that have a stake in what happens here. Can you talk about sort of just the, the politics and the political structure and the interest at stake in the region and why that makes this such a complex area to think about? When you think about the Arctic, you can think about it in its eight Arctic nation states. So taking a tour around the circumpolar north, first you have the United States via Alaska, then Canada and the Northern Territories of Canada, the Yukon, the Northwest Territories, none of it. Then you move over to Iceland, which just scratches the surface of the Arctic Circle, but is still an Arctic nation. Moving on to the Kingdom of Denmark, which is an Arctic nation because of Greenland and the Faroe Islands. And then you have the Nordics. You have Norway, Sweden, and Finland before finally getting to Russia, the largest landmass of the Arctic. But those aren't monoliths. Within each of those, you have different jurisdictions. You have cities, provinces, states, 
but you also have indigenous nations that have their own governance structures, their own leaders, and their own visions for the future. All of this, all of these different jurisdictions, these different powers, these different visions are brought together by an organization called the Arctic Council. And the Arctic Council is a governance organization that is headquartered in northern Norway, but brings together all of the heads of these indigenous nations and nation states together to work on both research projects, so assessments of the region's resilience, biodiversity, and pollution, but also binding agreements on oil spills and search and rescue. The Arctic Council changes its leadership every two years in what's known as the chairmanship. Right now, Iceland has the chairmanship, and its focus is on things like marine pollution. Makes sense, as Iceland is an island. In the year to come, we'll see that chairmanship move from Iceland over to Russia, and we'll see a new set of topics that the Arctic Council will focus on in its projects, in its assessments, and maybe in binding agreements if we can get all of the Arctic nation states and indigenous organizations to agree on one vision, which is not an easy feat. No, I couldn't imagine that that it is. Two, two things come to mind here. I've been reading a lot about the activities and the interest of the Chinese in the Arctic region, and I've never quite understood the claim to... Uh, the territorial claims that China, if they are making territorial claims. Uh, so I'd like to learn a little bit more about China's interest or other uh, states that are not on the Arctic Circle, the seven that you, or the, the, that you listed, more than seven. And I also want to know more about the council. Is the, is the council an international body? Is it formed by the United Nations? What kind of powers does it have over its members or over the region? So could you touch on those two things? In addition to the eight Arctic nations and the indigenous representative organizations known as the permanent participants of the Arctic Council, there is also observer states, states that are interested in what happens in the Arctic but are not located geographically in the Arctic Circle. And China is one of those, but we also have European countries like Switzerland and the United Kingdom. We have Japan and India, Korea, that are also non-Arctic observer states. And that means that they get to observe what's happening in Arctic Council deliberations and engage and contribute resources to those projects and assessments. And when we talk about China, the primary interest of China in the Arctic is economic, right? They are interested in an investment in a quicker route from eastern to western markets, that mm -hmm. shipping route that hugs the Russian shoreline, getting goods quicker from ports in China, in South Korea, over to European and eventually North American markets. And they're also interested in investing in infrastructure, just like China invests in infrastructure in uh, the South Pacific, in Africa, in North America. We see interest from China in funding transportation infrastructure in places like Greenland, but also extractive infrastructure like mineral mining. China also has some scientific um camps and projects that are ongoing in the Arctic. And this is their historical claim to being an Arctic engaged nation, that they have a longstanding commitment to scientific cooperation and the collection of scientific data in the Arctic. And while the Arctic itself is divided on territorial terms uh, across these eight Arctic nations, uh, there are lots of countries that have scientific endeavors, have scientific bases on places like Svalbard above Norway um, that have continuously engaged in collaborative research over the past 30, 40 years. And collaboration 
kind of answers your second question of what is the Arctic Council, where did it come from, and what does it have the authority to do? So the Arctic Council is an intergovernmental organization. It brings together different governments. And it was created not by the United Nations, but by Arctic nations themselves, who in the mid-1990s realized that they needed to create a forum to better cooperate on sustainable development and on pollution in the Arctic. After the fall of the Soviet Union, there was an acknowledgement that there was a whole lot of nuclear pollution that went on in the Arctic. And pollution is a transboundary issue. It doesn't stop at a political border. It requires cooperation to clean up, to assess, and to ensure that health, both in biodiversity and ecosystems, but also human health, is maintained and supported. And that was the start of the Arctic Council in 1996 in Ottawa, where nation state leaders came together and made a declaration to continue collaboration. And that's what we've seen since 1996, continued collaboration across Arctic nation states and indigenous permanent participants on both binding agreements like that oil spill and search and rescue agreement, but also on continued assessments on how pollution, like heavy metal pollution, is impacting human health, but also how pollution like marine litter is impacting ocean and coastal ecosystems. There's a lot there. There's It is just so incredibly complicated, but I, I, I find it you know, there's a parallel here between the origins of this council with pollution, uh, which is interesting, and climate change, which is also a, did you say transboundary? Was that the term you used? I liked that. Um, but I, I, I want to talk to you about um, the indigenous uh, folks that are currently, uh, and I guess historically, uh, for whom the Arctic is, is home. Uh, and nation states, which are uh, a totally different uh, construction of order and power, and the competing visions there, if you would. Now, I realize that there are uh, several nation states, and they have different visions, and there are many different indigenous units that probably have different visions. But if you wouldn't mind just talking about how these visions might com compete or align with regard to climate change? Across the Arctic, like I started out saying, we have many Arctics, right? We have Arctic nation states like the United States, but the United States is not a monolith. You have the federal government, the Trump administration currently, that has a very different perception on climate change um, that Alaska does as a state that native villages across Alaska do, that major cities like Anchorage and Fairbanks do, and multiply that across the entire Arctic, there are lots of different visions that sometimes agree and sometimes disagree with each other. The biggest challenge that the Arctic faces across human security, across food security, cultural security, planetary security, is climate change. The Arctic is warming at more than twice the rate of the global average. That means that average air and sea temperatures in the north are warming twice as fast as they are for the rest of the planet. All of that heat is creating catastrophic changes, both on land and at sea. And every nation, indigenous and non-indigenous, knows this. But political will, political ideology, economic opportunity, get in the way of addressing that security risk. And there, there's a pretty uneven landscape across the Arctic in commitment to climate action to keep those 4 million people that call the Arctic home safe, but also the 7 billion or so of us that call this planet safe. And in the last ministerial meeting, the last time that all of the secretaries of state, the foreign ministers, got together within the Arctic Council, they could not agree on a single document to release 
from that meeting. It was the first time that that had happened since 1996. And it was because Secretary Pompeo, uh, representing the United States, did not want the words climate change included in that document. And the reality that you have this major risk in the Arctic that is already causing millions of dollars in economic loss and irreplaceable cultural damage that the United States cannot agree to a simple document uh, doesn't bode well for collective action on climate change in the Arctic like we saw in the 1990s with pollution. Mm, Man, so the surrender of, uh, of American leadership around the world on the issue of climate I think is well documented in a number of settings. Uh, it's got to be disturbing to you folks at the Institute who look carefully, objectively, factually, uh, scientifically at this region to have the major world power, uh, the United States, uh, s- stepping aside of the issue, I don't know, putting our heads in the sand or in the ice in this case, and ignoring it. What does that, what does that mean for the region, do you think, is is it crippling to uh, effectively responding and managing the issues in the Arctic, or uh, can the rest of the world work around us? Like I said earlier, and like the word that you liked, climate change is a transboundary issue. It doesn't stop at wherever the greenhouse gases are emitted. You need collective action to address climate change any individual nation state's action to become carbon neutral to stop all of the greenhouse gases that they emit will not be enough you need everyone every single nation state on this planet to commit to carbon neutrality including the united states which is one of the biggest emitters in the world to have an administration that not only denies the basic science of man-made climate change, but refuses to act to keep its own residents safe is not just professionally difficult, but it's personally difficult for a person who went into this field because of human rights, because there are American residents in the Arctic, in the American Arctic, in Alaska, but also in the lower 48 that are being directly impacted and harmed by climate change impacts today. And the United States is not acting and is also not leading. You know, the United States has historically been viewed in the Arctic as a reluctant Arctic nation, uh, despite having the potential to be a large presence in the Arctic be a leader in the region. Uh, The United States has not developed its capabilities, right? We have limited the icebreakers that we have built. We have limited our economic investment in the region in human development, things like basic water, sewer, and electricity for American residents in the Arctic. That doesn't seem like a leader at home or abroad. So with climate change, with climate action, there is an opportunity for the United States to lead in the Arctic. And we saw just a glimpse of that during the Obama administration. Uh, We, the United States, held the Arctic Council chairmanship during the final year of the Obama administration and the first year of the Trump administration. And it was the first time that a sitting president went to the Arctic and held a major convening there, the Glacier Conference, to act on climate change and to bring people together. Of course, that stopped uh, immediately during the Trump administration. But the potential for the United States to be a huge leader in the region, to be guided by climate action, by indigenous experts that are already leading on climate action. Uh, That's there. It is ripe for the taking. And I hope that we see that American leadership in the year to come. Me too, Victoria. I am a big believer that this is an opportunity for the United States, uh, that, that being climate change, 
and that there's an opportunity. I want to see a, a great white fleet of research vessels and icebreakers traveling around the world to show off how good we are and how much we care. Uh, I think it's I think that this is an important part of American leadership going forward. I remain optimistic, but uh, I'd like to learn a little bit more about uh the Arctic Institute's perspective on the future up here, because you're, we're talking about this, you know, obviously uh, the place is changing. Climate change is having catastrophic impacts on people. You've pointed that out, but also like what's driving climate change. It seems to me is uh, carbon and our, our carbon economy. And I'm just curious to know what so much of this Arctic development seems to be about oil exploration, about shipping lanes, about, newer faster ways of of sending shit of globalism it's a symbol of globalism victoria and i'm i'm just curious to know what the institute's thoughts are on the future of the of the space vis-a-vis our global economy and things moving around the planet i mean can the arctic take it i mean question mark i don't i mean like is there a future where we are protect as you say the arctic is home it's a it's it's a it's actually like a, a a place that maybe needs to be preserved and and not exploited. I don't know. I, I what are your thoughts on that? The Arctic Institute has two big visions for the future of the Arctic. The first is collaboration that's led by the people that actually live in the Arctic. And that plays out within our institute through partnerships that we have. This fall, we have two awesome new partnerships with the Gordon Foundation in Canada and their Northern Fellows writing about future policies that Canada should enact to keep Arctic residents safe. And we also have a partnership with the Arctic Youth Network, which I also encourage listeners to check out. And this group of young leaders from across the Arctic will be writing for the Arctic Institute on their visions for the future and creating those partnerships with organizations, ensuring that the voices of those that are living in the Arctic are guiding the future of the Arctic is going to be critical. But that second point gets to your point about our carbon economy about the reality that just like what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic, what happens in the rest of the world doesn't stay below the Arctic Circle. Every decision that is made to drill for more oil, to commit to carbon-intensive industries, to lay another road for combustion engines, all of that contributes to the warming in the Arctic. And that includes drilling in places like Anwar, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. We already have enough oil and gas. We don't need any more coming out of the ground. What we need is a strong commitment to renewable energy across the world, from wind and solar and geothermal in the Arctic to large-scale concentrated solar and utility-scale offshore wind in the lower 48. All of this contributes to a carbon-neutral world that can ensure that the Arctic will have a viable future for the 4 million people who call it home. We will still see ice melt. We will still see permafrost thaw. We will still see lives lost. But for every degree that we allow our world to warm, the more devastation we are inviting on the region. Wow. Uh, You mentioned some of the catastrophic changes in the Arctic uh, that is uh, already being experienced. And I wondered if we could uh, explore that a little deeper uh, for the listeners. what has the scientific community found uh, in the impacts of climate change in the Arctic region so far? We know that the Arctic is warming at more than twice the rate of the global average because of polar amplification. And we also know that the Arctic has a number of feedback loops within it that contribute to even more warming. So as the Arctic warms, 
the Arctic Ocean also warms. That means that there is less ice cover in the Arctic Ocean. And when you have that white ice starting to melt, that dark ocean color starts to expand. And we know from walking outside in summer, stepping on a light surface is a lot cooler than when you step barefoot on the asphalt, right? It's really hot. That's because dark colors absorb heat. And that's what's happening in the Arctic Ocean as ice melts. As we see more dark surfaces, that water is absorbing more heat from the sun, which means that it's warming up faster and faster. That feedback loop is contributing to even more warming in the Arctic Ocean, but across the planet. And another feedback loop is at play on land with permafrost thaw. Permafrost is just frozen soil. It is the organic material from mammoth carcasses to ferns and trees that can't decompose at such cold temperatures. And so instead, all of that organic material is frozen in time. But as we see warmer air temperatures, that frozen soil that has been frozen for decades, centuries, sometimes millennia, is starting to thaw. And that means that roads are buckling, that buildings become unstable, but also that organic material starts to decompose. And that means there's carbon of more methane into the atmosphere, contributes even further to climate change. So these feedback are critical in the Arctic to continual warming and to a tipping point, right, where we can't stop further permafrost thaw, further ice melt, which, again, is just why it is so important to act on climate immediately rather than to continue to stall to some future date when it's too late. Mm. I, I'm curious, as, 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 the, uh, as the president and, and managing director at the Institute, and, and you've been there as a fellow and now as the leader of the organization, uh, I'm just curious what this shop talk is around the office or around the Arctic Circle. On the Zoom call, On as it Zoom might be. Or, or in, how, do, how do the communities involved in the Arctic, the, the nation states and the indigenous communities, talk about or explain to themselves the absence of U.S. leadership in the region? It's got to be perplexing given the substantial economic interests that are emerging in this region. Does anyone, what, how do you guys explain the fact that the United States is stepping aside in this region. The United States is selective in when it wants to be an Arctic nation. It decides that it's an Arctic nation when it wants to drill in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. It decides it's an Arctic nation when it is convenient for the U.S which if you look at U.S. foreign policy and U.S. economic investments, we are pretty opportunistic, right? And that plays out in the Arctic as well. Rather than a sustained commitment to human development, to increasing human capital in the Arctic of those U.S. citizens and residents that live in the Arctic, the economic potential for developing a region um, and cold climate expertise, uh, expertise in things like microgrids for remote communities that could be exported as intellectual capital, we fall pretty flat. And I think part of that is how the United States has historically seen its relationship with the Arctic. You think about the U.S. purchase of the mm -hmm. then Alaska territory from Russia, and many newspapers reported it as a blunder, right? The yeah. words folly, that it was a bad deal. And that has carried through, right? There hasn't been much interest in developing the American Arctic until we struck oil in the mid 20th century. 
And that was the catalyst for creating Alaska as a nation state of the largest native land settlement in U.S. history. Mm -hmm. And eventually the construction of the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. All of that is just because of oil. But as you look into the future, where oil is consistently a low price per barrel, where you are being continually restricted by more and bolder climate policies across the world that are transitioning to renewable energy, and you're looking at an Arctic with uncertain conditions from thawing permafrost and more intense fall storms, investing in more oil extraction isn't a wise decision. It's not a leader decision, right? It is this decision that is pegged on a historic perception of the Arctic's value rather than looking into the future where the value of the Arctic is really in the people, their expertise and their vision for how to export their innovations to the rest of the world. Oof. Yeah. It, uh, it, it, what I'm curious about, and uh, one of the things you said at the beginning that uh, struck me, I was not aware that there were 4 million people living in the Arctic Circle. You're right. My perception was there's really nobody up there. There's a few indigenous uh, communities. Well, and really, I didn't realize that there that's, were. That's a, it's a big area. It is. But four, and 4 million people is a lot of people. I mean, but it's it not, it's not that many people it's not i mean 7.5 billion on the planet so it's a small percentage but it's an it it's not as uh it's not as barren and unoccupied as uh i thought about it and i've described it and i don't know if this is accurate i'd like to get your comment on this i've thought this is the last great land rush on the planet earth and it's happening in the 21st century where an, a region of the world that has not been economically exploited to a substantial degree is now open and available because of the loss of sea ice we're seeing access to the region expanded uh, it's not quite year round at all but we're seeing substantial expansion of access into the region, uh, power plants being installed, uh, uh, infrastructure being installed. Uh, I've got to think that there's a lot of minerals in this region of the world that haven't been tapped. I've got to think there's a lot of fisheries potential in this region and obviously oil and gas. Uh, When you're looking at this economic interest list, Am I describing it right? Is this really as unexploited as it seems to me that it is, or uh, is that just a lower 48 (laughs) misconception on my part? The indigenous peoples of the Arctic have always developed the Arctic economically for local economies, for traditional economies. The photo that you might recall of an aerial view of the Arctic where you don't see any humans, so you assume that it's not being used, is actually an ecosystem service to indigenous peoples that has been used, whose footsteps are there, but they tread lightly, and who are using the region's resources sustainably. So the Arctic opening up to uh, different economies might be true, but the Arctic as an economic region has always been there, just from indigenous users who have done so sustainably. As the Arctic warms, there is more interest in what the Arctic can produce economically. There are more headlines, there are more conversations like this one, um, and there are more investment opportunities. And you creating that list have just about hit all of the different categories. There are more opportunities for mineral extraction from rare earth minerals to uranium to copper. Um, And some of those have gotten easier with a warming Arctic, but some have gotten more difficult with the lack of ice roads for trucks to come further south as the air temperatures warm. But with that extraction comes a real question of sustainability. Can you sustainably extract those resources? Can you socially uh, sustainably do that? Can you uh, sustainably do that for 
and the, the overall environment. Uh, we're seeing many of those conversations play out now as we see different mining opportunities, different mining investments being uh, delayed because of the lack of sustainability that they can achieve, like Pebble Mine in Bristol Bay in Alaska, yeah. a copper mine that can't be done sustainably. Um, and that is well documented in environmental and social assessments. And we see that challenge across the Arctic. Oil and gas is and has always been a important pillar of the Arctic's regional economy. But there's a false perception of it being easier to extract. It's certainly not economically easier today as we see depressed oil barrel prices. But also businesses don't like uncertainty, right? And the Arctic is full of uncertainties with climate change. We don't know when that specific area of permafrost will thaw and destabilize that oil and gas infrastructure. We don't know when Arctic sea ice will create more intense erosion along the coastline. We know it's coming, but a single shock event could mean economic devastation for oil and gas, taking climate change and mitigation completely out of the picture. And then there's fisheries, like you mentioned. And fisheries is one of the hottest topics in the Arctic economy's discussion, both in the Institute, because we have two projects currently on fisheries. We have our Svalbard Fisheries Hub project in uh, Norway, thinking about if Svalbard can be a sustainable hub to develop Arctic fisheries. And we have our Alaska Nor project that brings together Northern Norway and Alaska to think about the blue economy and what it means as fisheries are shifting north, are shifting in different directions as the Arctic Ocean warms and what that means for management. How much can we increase or how much do we have to decrease catches? Who manages those fisheries and what does that mean for local food security once you have the possibility of overfishing a new fishery that doesn't yet have a sustainable management system in place? So there are some economic opportunities that are new, but there are a whole lot of challenges on creating sustainable management and policy infrastructure to ensure that those opportunities are real opportunities and not just even more of a problem for the Arctic and its future. Wow. Well, I've got to say, uh, we've scratched the surface. That's how I feel about this discussion. Totally. It's just such a the permafrost. So many, scratch the permafrost. There's so many in complicated and interesting and interwoven considerations that come into this region from governance to the economics to the human rights angle which i know is obviously important to to your leadership at the institute uh victoria thank you very much for that overview and that tour um i'm hoping that we can from time to time have you back on to talk to us and educate the uh, listeners out there including us about the issues that are occurring in the arctic region uh Closing thoughts, uh, what would you like our listeners to know and how can people follow your work? I would love to be a continual guest with you because though I'm a bit biased, I think the Arctic is a pretty important topic to continually discuss yes. because the Arctic's constantly changing. And I think that's my departing thought is that Again, we think of the Arctic as something that's static, but the Arctic is in motion. The Arctic is changing as we speak. And that means that the Arctic as homeland, the Arctic as economic opportunity, the Arctic as diplomatic cooperation, the Arctic as nation state, the Arctic as a security theater is changing. And that requires continued discussion, education, partnerships, and ultimately action to keep everyone safe. And that's what the Arctic Institute is all about. So I would encourage everyone to learn more about us at thearcticinstitute.org. 
to check out those two series that I talked about with the Arctic Youth Network and the Gordon Foundation's Northern Fellows to hear from Arctic residents about their vision for the future. And you can follow me where I occasionally tweet uh, at BS Herman on Twitter and even more occasionally put up posts about women in the sciences on Instagram at Dr. Victoria Herman. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Herman, the president and managing director of the Arctic Institute from the nation's capital, uh, leader of an incredible 501c3 nonprofit organization founded in 2011 that is diving into the middle of one of the most complex uh, economic and uh, coastal issues, I would say, in the world. And uh, such a good overview, Victoria. We really thank you. And seriously on occasion when it is time to for us uh for our listeners to to learn the next uh developments in the arctic we hope you'll let us know we'd love to have you back on uh it's uh, it's such an important topic that uh we want to be part of uh our regular program yeah this is something this is something that we're gonna do uh more and more of ladies and gentlemen because we gotta understand this and and it's it's like victoria said the planet is changing and the arctic is changing twice over twice as quickly basically is what is what we're learning so if you want to see the trends if you want to see what's happening and if we want to develop you know the the methodologies and techniques for managing reversing coping all of it the arctic is a great place to look and it's also the international component which i think is also very important so victoria that was very good thank you so much yeah thank you very much for being on the american shoreline podcast we look forward to having you back on victoria thank you so much for having me i look forward to coming back anytime Benaboy, take one. Benaboy.